All right, we'll go ahead and get started today. We're going to be covering the second half of the pre-Reformation. So we're actually going to touch a little bit, probably in the 1100s, but going up to, to the 1500s. Uh, Andrew Fendrick did a, did a terrific job last week, covered, uh, I snagged his notes because he had me print them for him, so I just kept them just to make sure we wouldn't overlap. And uh, he did a, did a terrific job last week. He's in... Uh, Tennessee today, and he's had a really good weekend. We'll leave it at that. So, yeah, he's got, we can be happy, happy for him. Looks like he's getting married coming, coming up here pretty soon. So, yeah, he texted me this morning about, he's not getting married this weekend. He got engaged this weekend. Yeah. So, yeah, you've, some of you have met his uh, fiance now, Lauren, and yeah, that's great. It's always exciting when two people that love Jesus want to get married and serve them together. That's great. Um, so I'll be covering just some of the things that he didn't cover and um, uh, looking at how a Christian should think as well in the midst of, in the midst of chaos. And, and you might hear me and others talk about that a lot and just think, okay, just leave it alone. But it's it's really important for us to think through why weren't things as we might think they ought to be. And so um, Pastor Mark is preaching today, and I'll be preaching next Sunday. And the, the main topic I'm going to be preaching about next Sunday, or at least leading into it, is if, if, you, if you think of the words to O, o Holy Night, and in O Holy Night it says... Um, the weary world rejoices. And then it goes on and, and has some other things. Um, but kind of the thinking there is, the Messiah has come, making all things right, and, and we are then the recipients of this immeasurable act of grace from God. But then if you step back a little bit, I think we could, we could all say, the weary world is still is rejoicing, but the weary world is still really weary. And whether it's um, praying for Wes or for Derek or for others, or whether it's challenges in your own life, I, I think what are the benefits of the incarnation of Christ? What did people in the Old Testament think was going to happen at the incarnation of Christ? Were they looking for a coming and a second coming or... Were they looking for one? And then even for us today in that post-incarnation time, it's still really, really hard. And, and we're going to look next week at some, at some details of, of the goodness of God in sending his son and looking for future hope and what we have for present hope. But even be thinking as, as we're going through this today, God's on his throne and God is working um, and, and has been from the beginning of time. And so, you know, if you think, wow, it's so messy, and especially if you read, and, and I don't do extensive study on the popes, one reason, there's just so many of them, and they'll go by two different names or three different names, and they all get mixed up, and then, well, these, this group's actually anti-popes because they're not recognized anymore, but at the time they were this guy, and now they're this guy, and, you know, there, there's a lot of confusion, and you think, how can this be? How could, how could God allow this? But if we back up more, you look in the Old Testament and you think, well, how, 
how can this be? So you have Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan appears to be a, a godly son, a godly friend of David, a follower of, a follower of God himself. And at some point, his, he's killed and hung up for people to see on a wall. And his, he doesn't get the throne, that David is the recipient of the throne. And, you know, why did this happen? And, and oftentimes in the Old Testament and, and in the New Testament as well, we connect it to here's rebellion against God and God's correction, uh, God's, God's work in people's lives, for sure, for sure. But there's, there's righteous people too that, you know, Amos is out being a farmer and God says, hey, you know, you, you like dressing vineyards and taking care of sheep, but I'm sending you north and you're going to tell Israel what they're doing wrong. And they're not going to like it. I don't think he tells them that you're not going to like it, but they don't like it. Or, or we, we back up and we look at, at Job, and here's this righteous man and all these things happening to him. And one of the crowning ones for me is his kids are all killed. And, and God, in his, in his goodness and perfection, says, Job, I'm making it right. And, and Job is richer in this way and richer in this way. And he gets some good-looking daughters at the end. And if I'm Job, I'm saying... I would have rather had all the kids I started with. Thankful for these good-looking daughters I have now. But so in God's perfection, there is difficulty and trial and challenge and punishment of sin. And it's to push us to say, now is not what I'm all living for. And I need Christ more than I can even comprehend. And so when, you, when we read and we hear just some of the goofiness of this pre-Reformation time, be, be thinking that in our, in our minds over and over and over. God, you know, God's got this. God works in his perfect way. And this is all part of God's plan. And there's groups of people who have gone through the narrow gate. And there's a whole lot of people that have gone through the wide gate. And we should all be asking, which one am I? And what am I doing with my life? So be thinking of that even as we look at the second half of the pre-Reformation. Um, just a little bit here, uh, we have a group of people uh, preach salvation by faith alone. They rejected infant baptism, rejected kind of worshiping holy places, cross worship, refused church buildings, rejected transubstantiation that the bread and the wine actually physically become Jesus' body and blood relied on scripture over tradition to settle disputes. And you, you might read a list like that and you might think, um, you know, this, maybe this is Zwingli coming up here. Maybe this is something that Wycliffe or Huss or one of them taught their followers. But, um, you know, this, this would be a group um, called the Henricians in the late 1100s that if you, if you look them up on Google or something like that, it's going to say, well, here's some wackiness or here's some wackiness or here's some wackiness. And some of that might be true. One of the things with internet searches is anybody can weigh in or many people can weigh in to, to what is really true. So if you want to research the Spanish Inquisition, I would encourage you reading a book, not just reading online, because different groups are going to get a hold of that and say, I, I just out of curiosity read this week a little bit on the Inquisition just to see what kind of the greater world was saying. And I don't know who got a hold of the, uh, the Wikipedia answers on that, but there's less than 3,000 people were killed in the Spanish Inquisition, which is very reassuring. It's probably 
a whole lot more than that, but a, a very whitewashed version on there. So, so here we have these Henricians, Henry of, and I think it's Lausanne, however you say that, Natalie's mom and grandma were big French speakers, and so they'll correct you if you say, hey, Notre Dame's playing football, Notre Dame, or however you're supposed to say it. Uh, but, uh, and this Henry had some weaknesses. I think one of the things we're also reminded in history is we have these men and women with, with feet of clay, uh, as it were, that have some just terrific qualities and, and have some real goofy ones as well. Um, we'll get into the Anabaptists next week and probably even more the following week. And, um, I know a lot from Reformed traditions just kind of throw the Anabaptists out and say they're a bunch of wackos. Uh, but they had some good things as well. And one of the reasons things got goofy for many of, the, many of the Anabaptists was they were persecuted to such a level that they became these little pockets of people. And they didn't have, many of them didn't have all of Scripture in their own, in their own language. And so these isolated groups do isolated things. And so it, it was similar to many of these small groups. And the only reason I grew up... I, I brought up this group is uh, too many times in church history, people kind of think, well, there was, there was no Christianity from a couple here, hundred years after Christ, or at least until maybe five, after 500 or so up until, you know, Martin Luther came on the scene and opened everybody's eyes again. And just as a reminder that, that Dwayne has said, and, um, and Andrew as well, there were pockets of Christians there all along, but many of them were not published. Many of them had very little influence, but maybe some influence in their own area, and so um, don't have the recognition that many would have, but there were pockets of believers all along. So uh, a few other details um, we'll get into. I'll wait off on that just for a second. Um, You've got monasteries all around that we've talked about. You've got convents all around that we have talked about. A lot of translation happening in those monasteries. Very, very thankful for that. Um, you've got mendicant orders, uh, the Franciscans, and, and um, Francis of Assisi, and then you've got the Dominican orders. Um, and, and those groups were going around, and so instead of having a, a building and being isolated out in the middle of nowhere in this building, they would be out, not based out of one necessary place, and they'd be, they'd be wandering around. Um, Francis of Assisi, I think, is an interesting one. You know, grew up in a wealthy family. I think um, Italian father, French mother. Um, he had a different first name, but as, even as a kid, he loved France, and so his friends called him Francisco, uh, or like little French guy. And so he, he and his dad was a trader of some type, so they'd go into France all the time. So he, he liked France, and they were a wealthy family, and um, he has some type of salvation experience. He says, you know, he kind of tells his friends, oh, I'm so excited, I'm getting married. Oh, who are you marrying? Oh, I'm marrying Lady Poverty, and uh, I'm going to live very poor. And his parents kind of tried to capture him and keep him from doing what he was doing, and Old accounts say he fled naked. I'm guessing he had something on, but he, they said, well, we're not going to give you these fancy clothes you have. And so, good, I don't eat them anyway out in the woods. And he kind of ran out and got away from everybody. And uh, then he was actually doing some reading where, Je- where Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. And he said, well, maybe I can be poor, but not just live alone in the middle of nowhere. I can influence and I can preach Christ. And so 
he uh, was going around preaching, had other people doing the same. He was extremely concerned that they were going to be pulled in by the affluence that popularity would bring them. And so a lot of these groups would do kind of bizarre things to keep their people from being enamored with the things of this world. And I think for all of us, we have to recognize we can be tempted by that as well. And so even in this lesson, there's going to be a few different times where we're going to be reminded of this. They made some strong statements or some bold decisions with finances that went beyond what Scripture does and, and were really even unhealthy. But they were doing it because you have popes and cardinals and others living these unbelievably lavish lifestyles, and they're seeing this money hungriness just conquering people's souls. And so um, St. Francis is famous. One of his stories, he has a new uh, friar working under him, and they would kind of beg on the street while preaching on the street. And um, this guy comes in, he says, hey, I got a gold coin. We haven't, you know, when's the last time we got a gold coin in? And uh, Francis says, there's only one thing to do with that gold coin. Stick that gold coin in your teeth, dig a hole in that manure pile with the gold coin and put it in there because we don't need any gold. We don't want to be lavish, which if I was that guy, that'd be a, that'd be a strong one. I don't, we don't know for a fact if that's true, but that's been passed down for quite a while. So, so I don't know. Uh, the Dominicans were generally a little more pro-education. Uh, Thomas Aquinas came out of their uh, somewhat similar family story. Um, uh, from a wealthy family, didn't want to have any part of that. Being <clears throat> very, very educated, really probably the foremost thinker, certainly of that time. Um, we won't get into his story just because there, there's a lot there. Um, but, but these groups would be kind of all around. So now if, if you're going around in Owensboro and if you see someone on the corner and they are asking for money or something, we all have the tendency of thinking, oh, oh, you know. And really in Owensboro, uh, you will get stopped from panhandling if it's in any way, shape, or form and making people uncomfortable in an unhealthy place for stopping. And police officers will bring you to St. Ben's or Patino or something like that often. Uh, all the homeless shelters in our town, you'll be exited, you'll be removed from living there if you're panhandling. And one of the biggest reasons is you make way more money panhandling than if you go work a $10 an hour job. That is a lock. Uh, we, when we were at Patino, we would exit because people would take their cute little kid and go out in front of Walmart and they'd make two or $300 a day. So, and we, you know, so you'll definitely make more there than working for Henry's Plumbing or, or any other place. So you, you have to, <laughs> it, it really is true. I mean, so, so, um, there's actually other writing that you could read where you, you will make more money if, if I went out panhandling, as long as you make yourself disheveled, look, or if you bring a dog, or if you have a kid with you, you'll make significantly more than, than, any, than, than a lot of jobs. So, but some of it is, it's not as normal in our culture. Now, the first time, if you've been to New York City, the first time I went to New York City, and it was like the volume of people playing instruments and panhandling and chewing on their toenails while, while, you know, they're going to have an instrument next to her and people are throwing money in and like the piles of money and pretty eye-opening. At this time, the norm in cities was 
was this guy preaching over here and this person preaching over here. And so even in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s, when there was street preaching that was happening a lot more in the United States, it was much more of a norm. And it's just not so much now. Um, so a lot of it is, is what you are used to. But that would be a very normal thing at that time. Um, let's see, he covered quite a bit on scholasticism, so we won't, we won't cover anything there. Um, let's look a little bit, the, the fall of Constantinople. Um, so Duane really ably showed us a map, and it had different, the, the main churches in, in the Christian empire or empires uh, after, after 1054. 1453, um, we had looked a little bit on the Black Plague um, a little bit last week, and the volume of people dying, we can't really even picture that. But if you could picture this a little bit, if you had, were at Heritage 10 years ago, if you were a member here, and if you would have pictured what this room looked like on, a sun, on Easter Sunday 10 years ago, and I'm sure you had overflow somewhere, and you might have had chairs on the side. This room was packed to the gills, right? To the gills. The stage was smaller. There was more pews up here. And then picture if the plague happens, and this is what it looks like now on a Sunday morning during the preaching service, what you would feel like. So, so that was Europe at that time. And Constantinople is probably the worst. There's some accounts that say up to 88% of Constantinople died in the plague. Well, p picture what that would look like. And so, so even at the time of the fall, Constantine the 11th, uh, Muhammad the second, or Muhammad the second is what, is what this map, map says, um, his subjects are all gone. And so if you even look at, you can look at maps of Constantinople at this time, and there was different layers of walls as the cities grew. And so many people had died that those, ins that those outside walls were just farm fields. And how do you even protect this at this time? And then um, the, the uh, Muslims had gotten so much stronger, the Ottoman Turks taking over for the Seljuk Turks, uh, they had gotten so much stronger, they had pushed, pushed the Christians to a smaller and smaller and smaller place, so it was basically just that city. And, um, and then the Muslims had even Christian nations were having to give them some money. So anytime I read Serbia and church history after meeting the Baldwins, I'm always a little more interested. And there's an account of, I think, 1,500 Orthodox Christian Serbians helping the Muslims fight against Constantine the 11th because they owed him and they had to. And I think that same group had helped build some walls to protect Constantine the 11th because they were owing tribute in different places. Dwayne and I can talk afterwards and I can get the lowdown on that. But you just hear that and you think, how can, this, how can this all happen? And then, um, so there's, there's a larger map right there. You can kind of picture that a little bit. The, the Byzantine Empire that had at one time covered, you know, all of that going way down off the map that had gone on for 1,500 years or about 1,500 years, maybe a little bit less, was done. The Ottoman Empire was started. Um, and there's a little picture of the battle, which I always like look, looking at pictures of these battles as, a, as an artist, at least roughly at that time, would have, would have done. And, and just the amount of chaos that's there is, is really incredible and uh, really a horrible thing. Um, 
as I've said before, we're, we're good friends with, with many Muslims and we have them to our house and we go into their homes and, and many of you are increasingly getting to know people from different cultures and have for many years as well. But uh, Islamic culture at a very base level is really evil. Now again, I have close friends. We, we, we really enjoy our friends. Um, but the Quran okays and even promotes really awful things. And so even at this time in this battle, if you look at the end, you know, there's a, a long siege. Um, the, the Orthodox did some really cool things. You know, they had like a huge section of chains across a harbor so the other ships couldn't go in. So then the, the Muslims greased up a bunch of logs and hauled their ships over the top of that. Um, there was tunneling underneath some of the walls and then counter tunnels and very few people to uh, support the uh, Constantinople side. Um, they made appeals to the Pope. They actually reached out to the Pope at the time and they said, hey, uh, we'll come under you again. We'll, we want to reunite. We'll be friends again. The Pope said, great, great. Time passes. Time passes. We're going to send you some people. We really need them. We're all going to die. The Eastern Church is going to be over. And really, people didn't come. A few, but not very many. Um, Gunpowder was used for the first time, at least in this area. Uh, cannons. There's a cannon that the, that the Muslims used that was 27 feet long and uh, shot a 600-pound stone that had to be, they had to chip away and make a stone the right size to fit down in this thing. I mean, this is old-school warfare, 600 pounds, and it could be shot a mile, which at this time, a mile? I mean, that's just unheard of. You know, at this, at this time, it was, you know, the, the uh, Hundred Years' War that we'll look at a little bit has been just before this. You know, the longbow was a lot better than the regular bows, and that's why the English were winning everything, not too much before this time. You know, we're talking bows and arrows. And, and now we got 600-pound projectiles flying through the air and gunpowder going off and, and um, what is it? Greek fire, the stuff that would burn on the water and all kinds of, all kinds of different things. Um, 50,000 Turks versus 7,000 Christians, 53-day siege. Um, the Muslims won, changed the name to Istanbul. Um, tribute was paid by different, by different groups. And then the, the atrocities in the victory are just like unbearable to read. Um, the uh, city leaders, their daughters were you know, raped on the altar with crucifixes put behind their heads and just awful, awful stuff. Just awful, awful stuff. And, um, and, and those in Constantinople were having, at different times, they would say, in, instead of protecting the walls, we're just going to have prayer times. God save us, God save us, God save us. And in a sense, he did not. And, and Islam wins. That's a really, really hard one. So we, we want to say, I like to see good rewarded. I like that with my kids and you like that with your kids. If you work in business, you try to reward your employees that do well. If, if you are a police officer, you want righteousness to go forth and you want evil to be pushed down. We do not always see that in history. And I think a thing we have to remember, that there is a future hope that is great and wonderful, and sometimes death 
death is the enemy, but death is also, I'm with Christ. I'm with him for those that are truly followers of his. At the same time, I think we would all argue, many in these Christian groups were not truly followers of Christ. A lot of them were, um, had different forms of syncretism, were probably mixing uh, native religion with, um, uh, with Christianity and kind of making a mishmash thing right there. Um, we, go, we go to the popes a little bit. We're gonna, not going to name, but we've got this um, time when the popes were in Avignon. So if you could look on the map right here. So uh, our popes sh- should be traditionally in Rome right here. Um, Avignon became the place where they ended up uh, staying for over 100 years off and on. And that's probably the most confusing time. Uh, for me at least, of all the different popes, because there were so many, and so many became popes, and they were old, and so this one would die, and this one would come on the scene, and this one, and this one, and this one. It got to be that the uh, kind of reddish color were following the pope in Avignon, and you can see the different patches on the map there, and then in the yellow, we're following the pope down here in Rome, and then um, the groups in the kind of olive green would be part of the Eastern Church, different variations of the Eastern Church. Um, A big reason for the Hundred Years' War that, I think I have a slide on that a little bit later, but I'll just say that now. They would say, hey, hey, France, you're under the thumb of the Pope down here. You're getting all the precedence. Why would we send money to Avignon and then you get to keep it? So I'm in England at this time. So England said, no, 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 I'm going to support the Popes down here. Um, uh, The Boniface the the, uh, Eighth was... The Holy Roman Emperor at the time said, hey, I want you to do this. Boniface wouldn't do it. So he sent some thugs in there into Rome and said, hey, this is the way it's going to be. Beat him up, made him ride around town backwards on a donkey, which to me doesn't seem that bad. But at that time, I was like, oh, how would you live through that? He died a few days later. So then that group of henchmen said, no, 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 he didn't. He killed himself. Suicide, unforgivable sin. He's done for. He did not commit suicide, but he got beat up pretty well. But if you just look at how the the fracturing of that, and I can look at that now and say, okay, well, England didn't get along with France. Well, that's kind of normal in my mind. But you also have to picture, it wasn't always that hard of a line. And so my next door neighbor, I don't just get annoyed because his dog comes over and, you know, goes to the bathroom in my yard. I get annoyed because he's supporting a pope that I think is of the devil. And our kids are not going to play together and our kids are not going to interact. And this would just be a lot of that, especially in those border kind of areas. Because maps always give us, you'll see in maps of the Reformation this next week, Catholic areas, Lutheran areas, Calvinistic areas. There was more, there was more overlap than that, typically, in many of the places. So, so definitely some tension right there. Um, they... Uh, the, the popes in France weren't suffering when they were there. This is the, uh, their palace that they had there. Um, multiple popes were in Rome and were in France. And then at one point they said, okay, this pope and this pope, okay, no, no, you two are out. We're going to make a third pope. That actually didn't work. That one was taken out too. And I think it was Martin V then became the real pope after that. And the other ones became anti-popes. All that to say, this is the time frame of the pre-Reformation. And so if you're thinking Wycliffe and Huss and even some of these smaller um, 
people that would basically be unnamed to most of us, that wouldn't be as, as big of name pre-reformers, they're saying, what has happened to Christianity? I mean, if, if, if you came to church here and you were hearing, well, Mark's doing this and Keith's doing this and Keith Maddie's doing Thad, what? And I would hope in mass you would say, I'm, I'm out of here. I, I'm, I will not have a part of this. But at that time, that, that, that was just outside of the wheelhouse of any normal person. The, the reason, one of the main reasons that those, that cathedrals and beautiful churches were so popular, you have this, this idea in transubstantiation that this bread and this cup become Jesus and are re-sacrificed in front of us and I'm going to watch him partake of that drink. Whoa. And, and I need to have a building that can represent what is happening there. Jesus is being sacrificed in this building. And if we want any kind of prestige, somewhat looking to the Old Testament temple, even the tabernacle before that, but certainly against these pagans over here, or against this town over here, I want an amazing place for this sacrifice to re-happen. And so it, it made such a, a mixed up Christianity um, at the same time, there's battles going on and battles going on and battles going on. We have the Hundred Years' War between England and France. And uh, you've got at, at different periods in here, England has in 1337, England has this little bit in France. And then later going on here, they have a bigger section, get this entire section up here. Again, the longbow being a big part of that. Um, this is the Joan of Arc time. Joan of Arc is in a, a town from southern France and gets a vision and leads them into battle. And, and France makes a, a lot of victories, uh, Battle of Orleans, if I recall correctly. Um, she's eventually captured by the English, tortured and treated horribly, probably. And um, the French king at the time looks like, probably just says, you know, oh, thanks, but no thanks, you know, good luck there. She actually had tried to stop fighting earlier leading into battle and he said no no no, we got to keep having here so she gets captured she's uh hung uh she was finally burned she might have been hung and burned or she might have just been burned um she was killed there and eventually uh it went all back to england um so so kind of with within that I, I want to take us to a little bit of, of John Huss. And we'll just, we'll call him that. Um, so he was from Bohemia. I, I have these, this quote right here from him. Seek the truth, listen to the truth, teach the truth, love the truth, abide by the truth, and defend the truth unto death. And uh, he did die. Uh, Huss means goose. Luther would make comments, uh, you know, the... The Pope cooked the goose and, and things like that. They said Huss would joke about that as well. He was born in a town that was known as, I think the town's name was Goose, uh, translated. Czech Republic, they call it Bohemia if you do in the writing, in, in the writing at that time. Um, we, we kind of have such a, a Western way of thinking. Most of us do, not everybody in here. I'm, I'm sure the Baldwins big time don't, but most of us do. And so we can think, uh, you know, Czechoslovakia was what it was known as when I was a kid, Czech Republic. Now we think, oh, you know, hey, there's some athletes that have come out of there. We don't know, even know much what's come out of there unless we have 
maybe distant relatives from there or something like that. But definitely, you know, Prague was a, a center of education. Uh, a, a lot of Germans would come and study in that area until they, they made their own later, made their own university in Germany. Um, and you talk about the feet of clay thing. We're going to say some good things about Huss. But um, the feet of clay thing, you know, Huss has some quotes where he says, if you're a, a Czech citizen and you're adding German words to your speaking, if you're speaking some German, like, shame on you. You are disgusting. You speak this language because these, we are these people. We are not those yucky Germans over there, right? So, and you think that you're like, who cares? You had bigger fish to fry, and he did. But he had some, some things like that. He also had, this is an interesting one about us that I, I mentioned to, to Pastor Mark yesterday. So um, his followers basically had a, a rule of, of four things. I'll try to see if I can remember off the top of my head. But it's like, here's what we require of pastors. Um, we require that they uh, give the people both the bread and the wine in communion. We don't withhold it. And we, we don't hold fully, he didn't, to transubstantiation that it literally becomes. But, it, but the people must have it, okay? Second one, you have to use the scriptures. We use all of the scriptures. We don't limit ourselves to part of the scriptures. We use all of the scriptures, which was kind of crazy at that time. You do some reading by Erasmus 100 years later, who is a, a terrific thinker, and Erasmus is like, Old Testament, eh, some stories, kind of goofy. Let's look at the old, let's look at the New Testament, okay? So, so Huss was cutting edge on that. But the third thing that he had of his four requirements, I'm not remembering his fourth one. But the third thing, the one that sticks out, so it's, you know, communion correctly and uh, the word of God being used and all pastors must live in poverty, complete poverty. And I, we hear that now and you think, well, shouldn't muzzle the ox and, you know, labor is worthy of his hire and you know what's with that why would that be your top top of in your top four well the abuses of the time are pushing them to say almost all the clergy we know are completely not following christ because money is their god so we're gonna ratchet this thing back so that just reminds us we are we are somewhat we are citizens of the time that we live in and we need to be aware of that and we need to ask God and look in scriptures and say, open my eyes to what I'm not doing well, how I'm not following scripture or even in practice what I'm doing. And um, I think it also pushes some humility for us to say, what am I doing now that someone could look back in 200 years or 500 years and say, how could you do that and be a Christian? Because we all have things in life that we can do. I can look back to all kinds of different times excuse me, and say, how could Christ-affirming Christians do that? And we oftentimes have this arrogance of, well, now that we live in this enlightened time, we, we need to be very, very aware of things we might even be doing now. So uh, Huss, he's a priest, he's brilliant, uh, has a doctorate, um, a leading teacher and preacher in Prague, um, He's, he does some, some writing, quite a bit of writing. He's influenced by Wycliffe. Um, he goes, there's a council. That he's, he's accused. The, the, the popes are bickering. The pope is bickering with the emperor 
And, and Huss kind of gets in the crosshairs. They say, okay, we're going to have this council here, and we're going to check you out. Here's a big thing that happens at the conference. They said, uh, you're accused of these X amount of things. Do you recant? And he, he said, I don't, I don't, those aren't me. So I, I can't recant of that which I don't claim. Because they had things there, you know, you said this, you said this, you said this. So, and he said, I did not say that. And they said, if you recant, we'll let you go home. And he said, well, how can I recant of something I did not say? I did not say that. He said, well, you, you think about it some more. So the, the went on for a time. He says this at the end of his trial, I appeal to Jesus Christ. And these are just terrific words. The only judge who is almighty and completely just. And if you know you could get burned, you could get murdered for this, you would be crying out and recognizing the justice of almighty God and his son, Jesus Christ, in ways that most of us probably do not do well now. It says, in his hands I place my cause. Again, these are words, these are Christian words that we're pretty used to hearing. But if you were saying these words, knowing that you're going to die, and not just lethal injection or something quick, you're going to be burned to death, which oftentimes could be slow. You're saying, in his hands I place my cause since he will judge each, not on the basis of false witnesses and erring counsels, but of truth and justice. And he is burned. They asked him again to recant, gave him a little bit more time, stuffed a, you know, ripped his priestly garments off, put a paper uh, hat on his head, some accusations, and burned him. And he said this at his death. He says, I call God to witness that all I have written and preached has been to rescue souls from sin. There can be no turning back. My Lord walked the path of truth and duty even though it took him to Calvary. Can I, one of his humble followers, turn back now? To witness to God's truth is more important than life. Joyfully then will I confirm with my blood all the writings and preachings of truths that I've held. To thy hands, O Lord, I commit my spirit. And I would say one of the one of the really healthy things with church history is that we're reminded in times of plenty, which is the kind of time we're living in now, this is how God's people responded in, in terribly hard times. In times of, how can this be when I, who else will, will, will preach these truths? Yes, I have some followers, but who else will? But I'm going to be faithful, and God's got me in his perfect hand. Uh, we could look at the Inquisition. We really don't need to spend much time there. Um, some pretty awful stuff there. Again, there's, there's stuff that you can read. They'll say, oh, 3,000 people were killed. The Inquisition didn't officially end until Napoleon, although it wasn't going quite as hard. And you look at uh, Ferdinand and Isabella that sent Columbus this way, or at least financed him in 1492. Um, most Roman Catholics today will argue that the Inquisition was done be, to protect people because in far-off countries, people could condemn and they wouldn't know what was going on specifically in Spain. So they did it so they could have local groups that really knew what was going on. Uh, how many people died? We really don't know. Uh, 3,000 to 300,000, although there are groups out there that would say that it was over a million um, uh, let's see, a, maybe a little bit, 
Well, we won't. There's others. You know, Savern, Savonarola uh, was a priest. Um, the de Medici family had financed him. Kind of the norm at that time was um, a super rich dude or his family pays for my stuff. I'm rich. I preach what he wants. He does nice things. He makes us have a beautiful building. God likes us because look how beautiful our building is, our stuff. Uh, Savonarola was not on, on board with that. He's like, no. Uh, considered kind of an average preacher, got pretty fiery, did a few kind of wacky things. But overall, he was like, this abundance and, and reckless financing of stuff, how does that fit with, with what, the, what the Bible says? Um, he, he had some good things happened in their church and said, hey, you need to go over and talk to, to uh, this D. Medici guy and make sure he's, because he did this for you. And he said, no, instead, uh, I'll go pray and I'll thank God who really did it for me. And uh, when they came for him, you know, things ebb and flow. Everybody was for him until people weren't, until he wasn't as, uh, as cool anymore, maybe you could say. And um, they come in there to kill him. He said, I'm not going to fight back. He just let him take him. He was abused and he was killed as well. Um, see if there's anything else in there. Oh, he had, he was the first uh, youth leader who uh, had everyone burn their CDs and tapes. Uh, he would have uh, days where he would have, uh, he would build like a little shed and uh, you could bring all your fancy stuff, uh, jewels and fancy dresses and stuff like that. And you could, you could burn it and get rid of that junk and, uh, and uh, be more dedicated to God. So I just want to review one thing before we end. One, God is on his throne and has been. We see in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, we see today. So when you hear all this chaos, God's on his throne and continues to be. And future hope, but trust now. And then Daniel chapter 2, you know, he, he sets up kings and takes down kings. He, he gives wisdom. He, this is you know, Daniel, 700 years, 600 years before the time of Christ, and we're being reminded God is the one that works, and he's trustworthy. So in, in all of this, keep that in mind. Uh, any, any questions or uh, any comments anybody might have? Dwayne, you have any uh, Serbian things from... Uh, I always think it's so neat just hearing, like, different perspectives from someone who's lived in the Eastern Orthodox uh, areas. Anything from anyone? Has anyone ever shared the gospel with an Orthodox Christian or even talked Christianity with an Orthodox Christian except the Baldwins? At a wedding, I had an Orthodox, a Greek Orthodox man came to a wedding that I did 15 years ago, maybe. And uh, really interesting. And he was a devout man, owned a piano, uh, sold pianos and refurbished pianos and was really, really successful in, in Niwak, Colorado. And uh, he was kind of critiquing my wedding sermon. He was the great uncle of the groom. And he critiqued me pretty hard, which is fine. And uh, I said, would, would you say, he said, you know, as a Christian this, as a Christian, you know, he was pushing. Uh, I said, would you, and he was, in, he was maybe 65. I said, would you say that Christians are saved by grace through faith and it's not of yourselves and it's a gift of God? And he said, uh, I would not word it like that. And I hope that was kind of unique 
But that's quite an answer, because that's pretty much straight down from Ephesians chapter 2. And so I, I think um, at some point we're going to have Dwayne do a little, a little commercial for us and just share maybe a little bit about, not today, but sometime, um, evangelism and, and the Orthodox Church. I, th- I think that's, to me, that's one that I just feel like, what? Yeah. And then even on some of the, the history that we had up here, um, 1453, Constantinople um, falls. Since then, Russia has said, oh yeah, now we're the ones that lead this thing. And I think uh, uh, Tsar is Caesar, isn't it? Isn't that like their version of that word? There's, okay, yeah. The, um, I think it was, I think there was an, a Tsar Stephen of Serbia that kind of claimed the same thing, that he's the leader of the church. Is that true? I think I'd read that. I had that in my notes, actually. The thing I, the thing I try to do is always put Dwayne on, you know, I ask him bizarre and... Uh, I have Tsar Stephen of Serbia claims title somewhat, uh, as did Ivan III, to kind of be next in line for the ruling the Byzantine Empire, but that might be incorrect. We'll get, we'll get some information. Not today, Dwayne. You can't tell us even if you know. But another time we'll have you answer that, okay? All right, you guys are dismissed. We'll see you.